Okay, this is the, the green, the green sheet is the schedule that has kind of what we're doing this, this year and, and, and some of the topics and things that we're tackling. Um, our hope in, in this is really to, to try to give you in 10 weeks, um, to give you as best, the best, the, the best we can, give you kind of a, the, a historical and theological overview of the Bible. And we really want to, to walk through this, but um, we realize it can't just be 10 sessions because that would be difficult. We're, so we're breaking them up into 20 sessions, so two sessions each week. So it'll be similar to those of you who come to the table on a regular basis. You'll, it'll be similar format. There'll be two teachers. We'll teach for half an hour, take a break, teach for half an hour, and then we'll be done. Um, and we're going to try to incorporate more discussion questions um, along the way. So, so that's kind of that's what this is about. Um, that's what this schedule shows. And then also it, it says there is a um, supplemental reading, which is this book, God Stories by Andrew Wilson. Um, you don't, this is just really just supplemental. You don't have to read this, obviously. But it really does, Andrew does a, Wilson does a great job of walking through major stories and themes throughout all the Bible. I think there's like 59 chapters. Each chapter is three to, five pages, three to four pages. It's awesome. It's really bite-sized, easy to read. You can sit down and read them in five minutes. Read, read a chapter in five minutes and be, and, and really, he does a great job in a, in a real kind of casual, contemporary, creative way, help you see how this story fits in the line, of, fits in light of the, the gospel story, um, the bigger picture of what, what God's trying to do. So um, if, you, if you don't have anything you read in the summer, this would be a great book to supplement the study. And we are selling those. We have, I actually have one. And we have 10 on the way that should be here by this weekend. But we're selling these for 10 bucks, And, and um, I think we've, we're buying them for 14 So we're kind of cutting, them, cutting the cost for you guys. Also, there's a Kindle edition I think is probably 10 right? Something like that um, that you can get. So anyway, definitely recommend if you don't have anything else to read in the summer and you want some, something else. Um, the other thing is... Um, let's see, back in November, December, I was telling this, the group on, on, um, on Sunday that uh, I just realized, is, is this the Sunday morning dates or Wednesday dates? Sunday. These are the Sunday dates. Sorry. So ignore the dates. So basically what we're doing is we're, we're teaching this on Sunday morning, and we're also teaching on Wednesday night. So if for some reason you're gone during the week, you can catch, well, you, we're teaching it first Sunday and then teaching it again on Wednesday. So if you miss on a Wednesday, you can try to catch it the Sunday before um, if, if you need to. Um, but so like I was saying, in, in November, I think I, I, was, I was preparing for a sermon I had to preach in December, and I really, was, I really needed to understand the history of the temple and especially the history of kind of like the... Um, the exilic age where, where the church or the Israel was in exile. I didn't know that very well. It's kind of this period after David, after Solomon, when the, 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 the two nations split in the north and south. And I just, I, I knew they split. After that, it was like, blah, 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 prophets, um, 400 years and nothing. Jesus. That, that was like, in my mind, that's how this worked. And I, so I didn't know any of the details. And so I started studying and, and reading and trying to pick up on um, the storyline because I really, for, for a lot of reasons, just didn't know the Old Testament storyline very well at all. And, and so, that, okay, so that's me six months ago 
after a bachelor's degree in biblical literature, after a master's degree, after being in ministry for 15 years, and I'm going, I don't know the Old Testament very well at all. Um, so, so I don't know where you are in terms of your desire to know the Bible or, you, or your even desire to come to this class. Like, what, what would this class offer? How would this class help you gain a greater understanding of the Bible? So, so one of the questions I want you to talk about your tables right now for about three minutes, just a really intro question, is, is this. When, um, what do you wish you had a better understanding of, the, of in the Bible? What is it you wish you had a better understanding of in the Bible? So what is it you want to know better? What, 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 what do you wish you, you knew better when it comes to the Bible? So go ahead and share. Each of you share at your tables, three to, three to four people around you. And then we'll, Drew will get started. All right. We'll go ahead. Let me hear this real quick from you. I want to hear from uh, just a handful of them. What were, what were ones that came up at your table? What is it that you wish you had a better grasp of in Scripture, that you wish you knew more about as it pertains to the Bible? Okay. Uh, just how to read it and not be yeah. Lost. Yes. Prophets. How does the pro- how do we read through the prophets and a not get lost? B uh, apply that to our lives. That's good. That's a good question. We'll probably touch on some of that actually. We are going to spend we're going to spend some time in the prophets and matching it up with history. Been reading through. I'm in that spot right now where I'm reading through the prophets and and I do sometimes wrestle with that and and truthfully you have to to read large swaths of prophetic passages to be able to kind of get the point a lot of times, but uh, what else? The chronological story, sorry. It's alright, that works. You, Chelsea. Uh, the chronological stories of the Old Testament and the New Testament, okay. and then also like applying the Old Testament to our lives and how that Okay, I am so glad you said the first one. Uh, the chronology of the Old Testament, how that all flows together, and the New Testament, and we'll definitely be touching on that and, and kind of covering some of that stuff. Now, we're doing it very quickly because we're doing the whole Bible in 10 weeks, as Scott said. So, But that's that's great. And and I really do, well, I'll, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself, so I'll come to that in a second. Brandon? Uh, we'll kind of discuss, uh, you know, looking at those Bible studies that you have a craft Okay. Yes, your non-VBS Bible stories, your non-Sunday school Bible stories. Yeah, those lesser known ones. Cool. We just have a little general and we're talking about like reconciling old school Yahweh to like, I said old school, Old Testament. Yeah, <laughs> old school Yahweh, <laughs> retro God. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yes, how do you push the character of God in the Old Testament and connect that with the character of God as mostly manifested through Jesus in the, in the New Testament? As one, as, as one preacher said, is Jesus just 
Yahweh on Prozac. You know what I mean? Is he just like a more relaxed version of him? And, and how do those things push together? That's good. One more? Well, a whole idea here is that uh, I, I have all my life worshipped basically, I think, like a New Testament Christian. Yes. I'm a Jesus guy. Yes. And therefore I have neglect, quite frankly, neglected. Yes. Uh, so I'm coming here to assure peace and plan because our daughter, who lives in our home, has gotten into a group who is doing a whole lot of study huh. with regard to the Old Testament huh. and tying together yeah. the whole worship experience and showing the, well, I guess, dependency in some way. Got it, got it. Between Old Testament and New Testament. Yeah. And frankly, I hate to talk to her with such ignorance. Yes. So I'm here in self-defense. Yes, that's <laughs> good. I like that, Paul. Yeah, I think I think you probably speak for the majority of us when we say, and and I think it was coined as a positive thing, but definitely has a lot of negative connotations to it to be a New Testament believer um, that we we focus on and, and we do put our emphasis on. Uh, the Bible's not. We do believe this that the Bible's not all equal. That not every verse is equally as important. There are more important and less important things. However, it is all important. Even if it's not all equally, it is all important. So to be able to see how the Old Testament ties in, those are good. Um, I, I hope we'll be able to and to, to tackle some of those and, and touch on a, a number of those issues over these next 10 weeks. Um, Scott told you what we're doing. Let me explain to you just a bit why we're doing it. Um, the, uh, the, I want to make sure I'm not using a permanent marker. There you go, our dry erase board. Tim Keller has this, this great line I, I love. He says that most people read the Bible as though it is a list of rules and moral guidelines with stories sprinkled in to illustrate, um, whereas it's actually just the opposite of that. The Bible is actually one great big story with rules sprinkled in to illustrate. Um, and, and so because we always read it backwards, we read it opposite of, of what it's supposed to be, we miss so much and we see these things as just kind of disconnected sections here and the whole point is just to kind of teach me how to live when that's not actually what the Bible's about, is teaching you how to live. It, it does some of that. That's just not the point. There's a greater story that's going on, a greater narrative, and, and our hope is to help, help you gain a a large view of the Bible and that grand narrative that is in it because I really do believe that the rules make more sense in light of the narrative and, and um, the, the, each individual story makes a lot more sense in light of the grand scheme and the prophets make more sense and, and all those things when we can see the big picture then we're able to look at the small it's, it's like when you go to the mall and it has that little spot on the map that says you are here right when you walk in and what helps in knowing where you are is not just that there's a dot on a page, but that you have the, the grand picture of the mall in front of you. And you can say, okay, I'm here in the context of all these. And so I can look around and see, knowing the grand scheme helps me see what this little bitty dot on the, on the picture is and, and how that ties in everything else. And so that's kind of what we hope to be able to do for you guys a little bit as, as we teach this week. Um, one of the best ways, I, I, I think one of the... the most straightforward and, and probably biblical, quite frankly, ways of going about this is to look at the Bible as a series of covenants that are made with people and specifically with God's people. And so that's what we're going to be doing, actually. We're going to be walking through not every covenant necessarily, 
um, but five major ones as, as God is making his way through Scripture. And the first is what we call the Adamic covenant, the one that's made with Adam. Under that, there is kind of a subpart, which we'll get to, the Noahic, the one that's made with Noah, but it really is almost a restating of, of Adam. Then you have the Abrahamic covenant. You have the Mosaic covenant. You have the Davidic covenant. And then you have the New um, and at certain points in history, God shows up to individuals and, and kind of reveals himself and moves his plan forward through these different covenants that we make. And they are uh, kind of a continuation. They play on each other and they feed into one another. And so we're going to be going through these, splitting the new into two parts, two halves that we'll cover. Um, but this is, these are going to be the different acts of this play, if you will. As, as we walk through the Bible. Today, obviously, we're talking about um, the Adamic Covenant starting all the way back, very first verse of the Bible, Genesis 1-1. And if you've got your Bible or your smartphone or whatever, you can open up to that. Genesis 1-1, and, and, and we'll be kind of jumping a little bit forward in different spots, but to start here, Genesis 1.1 says this, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. This is how the Bible begins, that in the beginning there was God. And God comes in and He creates and He forms and He orders and establishes um, everything that we see, and, and actually the uh, well, uh, kind of the, the emphasis in the creation narrative is really a little less about how God, actually it's not so much how God made everything, the, the emphasis is on the beauty and the glory of it and the order that he brings to it, the beauty that he brings to it, the goodness that he brings to it. One of the problems, I think, over the last couple hundred years is we've come to Genesis 1 trying to ask the question, how? How did God do it? Did he do it in six days? Were they literal 24-hour days? Were they ages? Were they periods? Was it through this process or was it through this? Did he speak? How did he do it? And that's not a bad question to ask, and it's, it's a helpful question to ask. I just don't think it's the, the question that Moses is trying to answer. I don't think it's what they're trying to get at. More, um, the, the greater emphasis here is he's trying to declare to us the beauty of creation and the beauty of a God who takes chaos. Um, the sea was a big image, was a big picture of chaos. Um, back then before, you know, snorkeling and scuba diving and submarines, um, the, the ocean, the sea was a mystery and, and, and it was somewhat scary, honestly. We'll see actually this picture of the sea come up all the way again at the end of Revelation. So we kind of open and close with it a little bit, and, and darkness is there, and then it says the Spirit of God is hovering over, and from there on out, He starts to create an order, and He brings out of chaos beauty and goodness out of those things, and so He begins to create day one, day two, and every time something is made, this, this refrain comes up over and over again, and it was good, 
and it was good. He saw that it was good. And so what we see is God ruling over creation rightly. He is sovereign over it and his powers over it and everything is good and everything is as it should be. And then on the sixth day, the culmination of creation is humans, is mankind. And so he creates Adam and Eve. This is what we see in Genesis 1. Verses 26 and 27. It says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. Um, so we see this, made in the image of God. The, the term that theologians like to use to describe this is this Latin uh, phrase, imago Dei, image of God. So imago Dei is key and crucial to, um, is, is crucial to this overarching narrative that we're going to see, crucial to the Adamic covenant and, and to the rest of the world. By the way, it's worth stating here that the, the very fact that this verse highlights not just male, but also females being made in the image of God, would have been a radical concept, a radical idea to write at this time. You're talking about um, some, uh, uh, you know, several thousand years later, at least 1,400 years-ish later or a thousand years later, um, you have philosophers like Plato who are saying that women are just reincarnated men who screwed up in their former life. Like that's your punishment, okay, for being really bad at being a man as we turn you into a woman. That's, that's what Plato was saying. Aristotle was saying that women were the result of weak men who weren't able to proper like a full human being, and so instead they, they, were, they had daughters born to them. Um, and, and so this is, this is like the general view of history uh, over a thousand years later and all the way. So, so it only progressed by the time we were to Plato and Aristotle, women's rights had moved forward seems to be. But, but all the way back here in, in the writing of Genesis, you see an emphasis that it wasn't just men made in the image of God, but women too. And, and that's an important thing to, to catch and to note. Now, there's a lot of discussion about what Imago Dei means and what are all the implications of it. We could probably spend the rest of this summer talking through Imago Dei and, and all the inner workings and outworkings of that. But here are kind of a couple hints as to, to what we believe the writer's getting at when he talks about being made in the image of God. Back um, during this time in the ancient Near East in Mesopotamia, some of the documents we have um, tell us these things. Um, John Walton, he's an Old Testament scholar, points out this, that an image was believed to in some ways carry the essence of that which is represented. So it's believed to, in some ways, not, not that it was that thing, but to carry some of the essence of that which was created. This is why, back then in the Old Testament, that you could worship an idol. I, I remember always growing up thinking that was so weird, that you would carve something out of wood and then bow down to it. Um, that you would, that you would you know, chisel something out of stone and then bow down to it. You made that, man. Like, what are you doing bowing down to something you made? It's a rock. Don't you know that? But, but they knew that. They knew that, but the, the belief is that something made in the image of Baal or something made in the image of Moloch carries some of the essence of Moloch in it, carries some of the essence of the deity in it, and so therefore I can bow down to that image, and in a, in a sense I'm worshiping 
that creator by doing those things. And so there's some of this in it that, that to be made in the image of God means there is, there is in some sense some of his own being in us that is not to say we are divine or deity or anything, but that he himself is breathing as we see himself into us. Um, second, another thing that we would see back then is kings would set up images of themselves in places or in territories where they wanted to establish their authority. So a king goes and takes over this neighboring region. When he wants to make sure that his authority is established there, he puts an image of himself in that place. And that says, this is mine and I rule it. I have authority here. And so that gives us also a hint about what we are as the image of God. Lastly, a big hint we get is actually from Genesis 5 itself, where the writer will say this, that man is made in the likeness of God. And then in like the very next verse says this, and Seth was made in the likeness of Adam. And so in the same way that a kid is made to look like their father or their mother, that's the same way that human beings are made to look like God, are made in the image of God, that we resemble him in a sense. So um, Wilson, in, in the book that, that Scott talked about, God's stories that some of you will have, he actually says that the image of God kind of plays out in five different ways, that it means five things. Um, I, I think that, that the five things that he mentions are great, but, but three of them, I would say, are are more biblical, are easier to trace through the scriptures. And so I want to highlight those three that I really do believe to be um, for sure and, and true, um, like what it means to be made in God's image. The first thing it means is that we, and it's going to be somewhat obvious, but it means that we resemble him. Okay, now this doesn't mean, I don't think physically, obviously, that we resemble him, that that because we believe that God is spirit, and spirit does not possess flesh and bones. And so, not that we necessarily resemble him, although Wilson will go to point out, it's interesting that every time God appears, he appears like a human, via the angel of Yahweh or through Jesus. And, and so we see that. Um, but, but more likely, what I think this is talking about is that we resemble him in his character and in his attributes. And also, to, to play off of that idea of Seth and Adam, of, of a baby looking like its kid, um, I think it could be stated that we have the we are born with the potential to look like him, that we look like him somewhat, but that we have the ability to grow in that image. In the same way that when I was born, um, I looked like my dad a little bit, like I had I had some of the common things there. But as I grew up, you could see as I grew and mature, you can see, oh, that's Steve Moss's son. Um, I was talking, I was telling the Sunday group, people always. People always ask us whenever we've had one of our kids, like the day we have the kid, they ask us, who does he look like? And my answer is, I have no idea who this looks like. Like, I, I hope that's not what I look like. I hope they don't look anything like me right now. Um, because babies all look the same, and they all look weird when they're first born. Not you back there. You're beautiful. But all the other, all the other babies look weird. And, and, and the truth is, Hudson may have had a little bit, a faint resemblance to Amy and I when he was born, but he can grow into that. And, and I think that there is truth to that. I think it's also true that we can actually move away from that in some sense. Um, not the value of the image, but the actual resembling of his character and his attributes. Um, second, it means this, that we, just like God does, we saw it at the beginning, God creates and he sits over all creation and he rules it. That's what we do. Human beings are made to 
rule as God does. That's what it says. Let's make man in our own image and give him dominion over the birds and the air and the fish and the sea and over all the creatures just like God does. He sets man here in his image and, and places man over creation to rule and govern it with the, with the authority of God himself, that we are in a sense to govern over creation on God's behalf. They were to kind of have that authority with him and like him. And, and in the same way, I think that this is key, in the same way that God, what he, we see him doing is bringing order out of chaos. That's what we're supposed to do. Man is supposed to cultivate, to take the simple and bring it together and make it better to work and, and order and, and bring beauty to this world. I think that's what we're designed to do. It's also worth pointing out. In Genesis 2.15, when, when God starts getting practical and he says, this is what this is going to look like, Adam, he places him in the garden and he says, and your job is to care for this garden, to tend to it, to make sure it's in working order. It's, it's worth noticing and pointing out that that happens before sin enters the picture. That is, work is not a result of the fall. Work was always designed and intended for us. To labor, to create, to bring order and organization out of things. That's, that's something that we were made to do just like God, the image that, whose, whose image we were made in. Work, what we'll discover, work wasn't caused by sin, but it was made more difficult by sin. It was made frustrating by sin. It's, it's never fully, um, doesn't give us the full level of satisfaction um, that we long for a lot of times because of sin. And the last thing is this, that in the image of God, we have the the ability to relate. And this comes um, primarily from our, our, our Trinitarian view of God, that God in His essence is relational. That God is three persons in one God who have been in, from, from all eternity, have been in perfect relationship with one another, have been in loving, joyful, beautiful relationship. And so God is, at His essence, relationship. And therefore, we were made with the ability to not just relate to Him, which is key, but also to relate to one another. And so these, these three things, I believe, are, are worth highlighting as to what the image of God really does mean in us and, 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 and what it means to be human, made like God. Um, it's, uh, I will say this, it's, it's kind of interesting noticing. Actually, let me, let me move, move ahead and we'll, get, we'll come back to some of that in just a second. Um, Genesis 1 28 is where we're going to be in just a second. Real, real quick, if I were to ask you, what's the first command in Scripture that God gives, what would, be, what would you say the first command in Scripture is? Okay, Anthony's got it here, and I saw Kelsey mouthing it. Um, be fruitful and multiply. Most people, you ask, what's the, what's the first command, the first place their mind goes? Don't eat that fruit, okay? <laughs> Don't touch that. Stay away from that. Um, kind of the first thing that we, we, were, we were supposed to, it was, it was a negative command, don't do that, and we did it and screwed everything up. The first command that God gives is actually less command and more blessing. It is be fruitful and multiply, have sex, produce babies, and then go into all the world with that. Your parents probably never told you that the first command in the Bible is have sex. Okay. Um, <laughs> But, and, well, never mind. I'm not going to even chase that. Um, so, um, so, so this, is, this is what he says to them. Genesis 1, 28. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. 
Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So the original design, this is how it was from the beginning, is that God places his own image in human beings. They resemble him, and the, and the blessing is, and the command is, this is, by the way, the Adamic covenant, be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the earth. This is this first covenant. The, the idea is that God places his image in human beings, his glory in human beings, and then they are to be fruitful and multiply and spread that glory all over the face of the earth. And so that's, that's the original design. That's the original intent. Also, as they spread throughout the earth, they are supposed to rule and care for creation on his behalf. They are supposed to do these things just like he does to bring order to the world just as God does. Rule over the fish of the air. Rule over every living creature. Have dominion over those things. And that doesn't mean what it so often means or is kind of taken as, especially in like Midwest America, that we can just do whatever the heck we want with this place. The idea is that just as God cares for it rightly, that we ought to do the same and take care of um, the creation that he's placed under our authority. So even in the blessing, you see the outworkings of the image that you be fruitful and multiply and take this image as you resemble him throughout the earth, that you rule over it. And then lastly, we see, um, uh, moving ahead to Genesis 3, that God is walking through the garden in the cool of the day after they, after they sin. And, and, and what is implied in this, what it seems to be painful for us, is that this is a common occurrence, that God walked with Adam and Eve and knew them, and so that we are to relate to him and to know him. And, and in these three things that we bring him glory as we do these things, that we know him and enjoy him. Now, it is kind of interesting. This is probably the one that we stress the most. You hear it all the time. Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. And, and we talk about your relationship with Jesus and how's your relationship with God going. And, and we talk a lot about relationship. I believe that that's a beautiful and wonderful thing. It is kind of interesting to me, though, that the one that we probably highlight the most is highlighted the least um, in this, that this is actually where most of kind of from the beginning, this is where most of the emphasis is placed on, um, is, is ruling on his behalf. The ultimate point, and, and, and this is where the relationship thing sometimes steers us south when we look at that exclusively, is, is that we, we begin to look at the Bible as though it is about me. So how do I get into a loving relationship with my father? And that's, again, great question to ask. The Bible helps us to answer that. That's not the whole point of the Bible. The, the, the grand story of the Bible is about God and His glory and the spreading of His glory throughout the world. And when we, when we make this a lot more kind of me-focused, um, this is the way we share the gospel a lot, right? Um, we share the gospel a lot in, in the realms of that, that God loves you and has a plan for your life and, and He wants to restore you to Him again true it's it's just not the whole picture but when we make it about that i think that's one of the reasons we sometimes miss the big picture of scripture that's why we come to stories like joseph which is where we'll be next week or where ryan's going to be preaching on sunday and we get to joseph and we try and figure out what's the moral of the story that is supposed to be taught to me what am i supposed to learn in this and and the writer's not writing to give you a moral of the story so you can improve your life it's not about you it's about God. And so the question is, 
how is God manifesting his glory in this story? And how is he at work to see his plans come to fruition in this story? Now we move ahead. So Genesis 2 closes and everything is good as it should be. Man and woman are in the garden. They are in the image of God, caring for creation. They are relating to him. And then in Genesis 3, the serpent comes and tricks Adam and Eve into eating the fruit. We call this the fall um, and, and so he comes, he tricks them into this, and, and here's where we'll, where we'll pick up in Genesis 3, verses 6 through 9. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. That's actually kind of an, an interesting little verse there. She also gave some to... I don't know if you remember, when, whenever you see like the VBS flannel graph or whatever, it's usually Eve by herself with a serpent, right? And Adam is, we don't know, somewhere. He's somewhere off. But actually says she gave some to her husband who was with her. So he's standing there too. Um, uh, sorry, I'm, I'm losing my voice. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of Yahweh God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from Yahweh God among the trees of the garden. But Yahweh God called to the man, Where are you? And, and in calling, Where are you? We know now as, as omniscient. God, he's not inquiring about their physical location. Uh, I think he's asking a greater picture about where they are, where their state is in relationship to him now. They eat this food and, and immediately the first thing that happens is shame. They recognize their nakedness and, and in their shame what they try to do is make coverings for themselves to cover their shame. That becomes, by the way, a pattern repeated throughout history. Uh, human beings sin and then they try to take matters into their own hands to cover up the guilt and the shame and to do away with that in their own way. And, and God steps in just like he does with Adam and Eve in providing skins of animals for them. God comes in and says, you know what, I, I can do this better than you. Like I, I'll take care of this. And so that becomes kind of a pattern throughout Scripture. Because of sin that comes into the earth, a curse comes Genesis 3, verse 14 says this, So Yahweh God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. There are a number of scholars who believe that right there, Genesis 3.15, is the first messianic prophecy. The first prophecy about the coming of Jesus that through human beings, through the woman there, her seed eventually comes Jesus and, and the serpent would strike his heel, but, but he would crush the serpent's head and he would defeat it. There are some who see that this is um, the, first, uh, the first place of that. 
Um, 16, to the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. This is often kind of read as though what's going to happen, part of the curse of being a woman is that you're really going to want a husband and he's going to rule over you. That's like the curse is that you like boys now. Okay. Um, but that's, that's, that's not what actually this is getting across that word desire um, is, is actually the same word that's used when God is talking to Cain and it says that sin is at your doorstep and it desires to have you. Same word used there. Um, that is what, what sin wants is to control Cain, to take him. And what he says is, is um, now Eve, what you'll want is you will want to have control. You will want to be in control, but your husband will rule over you. And so this is part of um, the, the result of the fall that comes in here. Um, verse 17, to Adam he said... Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return." Um, so this becomes the result. Work, again, as we said, was, was made by God, but work becomes difficult. Work becomes hard as a result of the fall. Here is actually some of the bigger picture um, issues of what happens in the fall. This is, this is what's at stake, and this is what ends up being undone. Um, the first thing we see in the fall is that um, man's image of God becomes broken and distorted. So that we do not properly now, in our sinful state, we don't properly resemble Him. That doesn't mean that there's no more image of God in us. We're still made in the image of God. There's still value and there's still worth, but it's twisted now and it's, it's corrupted. It's, it's messed up just a little bit. And second, um, what we discover is that we no longer rule properly. Um, and, and as a result of that, in the same way that when a country is under a good leader, it seems to thrive and do well. But when a country is under Kim Jong-un or Kim Jong-il in North Korea, that we see things fall apart. This, the same is true for us that, um, that the creation underneath us suffers. One of the reasons that our rule becomes so messed up is because we take the authority unknowingly, we take the authority that God granted to us, His authority, and then we hand that over to Satan and say, you have it. We don't know that we're doing that necessarily. We may not even see that we're doing that, but that's what we're doing. And we give authority over to Him, and we follow His way, and He becomes what is called in Scripture the prince of this world. Um, the one who, who kind of oversees and rules over these things. And, and, and it's not that he has absolute control, but it is that we have handed over the authority that God gives to us. Lastly, we see, and this is again stated a lot, and it is very true, and that is that our right relationship with God is severed by sin. Because sinful human beings cannot stand in the presence of an absolutely holy God. Cannot stand in the presence of a righteous God. We would be undone. We would be um, consumed by His holiness. And so that relationship is not what it was. It's not what it was intended to be. So, ooh, almost marked my Bible up there. Um, 
So here's the big picture, and this is what you're going to see over the next 10 weeks. The story of Scripture is a story of a God who is at work to reclaim what was lost in the fall. A story who will still have his glory, who will still have his way, who is going to move and bring his authority back into the world. You'll notice next week when we get to Abraham how much the covenant that is made with Abraham will sound a whole lot like this one right here. Pay attention when we get there. And you'll notice that and you'll see that um, come to pass. Now, here's a bit of a spoiler for you, okay? not, to, not to move us too far ahead, but turn to Matthew 28 real quick. Okay, this is a very famous passage of Scripture, but I think we, we honestly often read it um, disconnected from the grand story. Matthew 28, 18 through 20 says this, um, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority, you catch that word? In heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So here's what you have you have Jesus coming, and he comes in the exact uncorrupted image of God and in his sinless life as he rules properly and as he refuses to submit to the temptations of Satan in the desert he reclaims the authority that man was supposed to have and he shows us exactly what a right relationship between father and son is and then makes a way for those things so as Jesus comes and he reclaims the authority that man was supposed to have he then stands right before he leaves on the side of the mountain and he says now I'm conferring that authority on you. Be fruitful and multiply. That's not exactly what he says, but that's what he says. Go into all the world and make disciples in my image, people who look like me, people who follow me. Here's the authority. Go and bring this authority, bring this image, bring this relationship back to the entire world. And so what we see in Matthew 28 is a renewal of Genesis 1:28. It's a, it's a bringing back and a making new of the original plan. The Bible is going to be moving us towards this and then even beyond all the way to the end in Revelation as we'll study and see throughout this summer. Um, go ahead, take a, a minute or two to stand up. Restrooms back there through the kitchen if you need to use that. Um, stretch your legs and, and we'll get started in just a couple minutes with the, with the next half. All right, we're going to go ahead and get started. So we have a spot. All right, take some in the next section. Okay, let's hop in. We are, uh, Drew has done a great job to give us a scope of what we're doing and an overview of, um, of scripture as a whole. Before we jump into what we're, we're going to slow it down and go through some smaller stories. Uh, before we do that, let's talk first. I want you guys to talk back to me. What were some of the things that you picked up from what Drew talked about? 
um, that are, that's going to be helpful as we go through the stories of Scripture and try, and try to break down what they mean and, um, and how they fit into the big, big narrative. What were some of the things that jumped out? couple of you were at this on Sunday, so I will start to call on people. Yes? I think uh, one of the things that goes out of the Genesis is that humans have the main ability to screw things up, but God still has provision. Yeah, yeah. And you're going to see that's a big theme in a couple of these stories we're going to talk about. This, The sovereignty of God, His providential ability to... Um, uh, one of the, the sayings you'll hear is that God can hit a straight lick with the crooked stick. He doesn't need um, perfect people to achieve His means or to achieve His, his will. Um, so yeah, we're going to see that in a lot of these stories. What else? Great point. Um, you might not be able to see this, but we have the meta-narrative up here. Um, that in Genesis 1 and 2 we see that God created, and in Genesis 3 we see that um, sin entered the world, and then the, it was broken, and, and then we have, we have what we call the fall. And then from Genesis 3 to the end of the Bible, Revelation 22, we have the story of redemption, and then the story of restoration. And you're right, Bo, I think that probably a better way to sum up these two, um, these two sections, particularly the final section, is recreation and and it's helpful to see that god is working in that way and it really helps us to understand kind of how these stories fit together paul you had something uh, the, the, the concept of image has literally been a concern to me all yeah life. And, uh, so I, i've gotten some new ideas here relative to uh, the three aspects of image that uh, i can i can build upon yeah and, uh, so that was a very useful thing yeah the uh, to understand what it means to be made in God's image helps us to understand um, kind of our, our, where we fit in the order of creation. There's a reason that we're called the pinnacle of all creation, and God has expectations in, in, on, his, on His image bearers, and, and then He has um, a right to His image bearers. Anything else? Yep. Text. Romans 5. Great passage to see that Jesus is the second. Yes. Uh, that God's first command was a blessing rather than... Isn't that interesting? We always see... That even goes back to Kelsey's question. Like, a, what about... Why, why is God such a, like a crotchety old guy in the Old Testament and then he seems kind of like this stoned hippie Jesus in the New Testament? And we see that that's actually a little bit different than that. That God is not so prohibitive and restrictive as we think that he is like don't touch that tree he's like no I, I like i want you to thrive and to flourish and that that can only take place under my directive through my will and and it's and yeah that's a great great point okay we uh, one more Oh sure. Isn't isn't um, isn't um, to, to to listen to Satan? Isn't that to abdicate a bit of our position and to yeah? That's that's a great point that we have we have an an innate authority because of whose image we bear and we have we have willingly handed it over 
to, to someone who hates him whose right, image we bear. Just in case you haven't seen the evening news, we caught it before we came. And uh, there he is appearing before a court, a legitimate case being brought by people who wish to declare a chimpanzee as having full human authority and relationship and be considered as a human. Sure. And, now, uh, of course, they're popping into mind all kinds of, oh, oh my goodness, you know, mankind is going to... Uh, sure. And, 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 and we got to be careful that we don't, like, devalue God's creation. Sure, but there is a point at which you're elevating things to the status of image bearers that aren't. That's a great point. And, yeah, we see that all the time. Funerals for animals and this, that, and the other. I'm like, I can't wait for my dog to die. Uh, it's my wife's dog. I'm not just angry at my own dog. It's her dog. I got him for her to keep her company while I was in college, and he has served his purpose, so I'm ready for him to go. Uh, we are going to be dealing with uh, two, small, two of the smaller stories. Uh, just so you understand why we slow it down the way we do, Scott and I were kind of giggling back there as we were going through the, um, through the, uh, the schedule. And, and we were paging off in his Bible how much we're going to cover each night. And it's like, in a Bible, it's like 150 pages, which might as well, you know, it's, it's amazing how quickly we're going to move through these things. But I hope that when I start to show you some of these, the distance between these covenants, you'll say, oh, okay, it makes sense why we would move so quickly through that section. Um, we're going to tonight just deal with the, uh, a couple of the events that take place underneath the Adamic Covenant and before the Abrahamic Covenant is instituted. And just so you're aware, the distance between Adam and Abraham is um, roughly 4,000 years. Roughly. Adam to Noah is roughly 4,000 years. But Adam to Abraham is 4,000 years. Abraham to Moses is another 600 years. And then Moses to David would be about another 400 years. And then David to the New Covenant would be about 1,000 years. So you see, we have a lot of distance to cover just to get to the New Testament. Tonight we are going to cover 4,000 years of history in two little stories. It's, uh, it's gonna, well, actually, we're going to cut, yeah, thereabouts. Next week, Drew is going to be talking about the Abrahamic Covenant. And we're going to be um, effectively 2,000 years before Christ at that point. We are now at... You know, if you were to say us down here, 2,000 years after Jesus, we are now as far away from Jesus as Abraham was. Isn't it fascinating how much we compress the Bible and we just think, uh, we talk about this thing called biblical times. When were, when were biblical times? The, the, the Bible is an unbelievably long historical document. So Abraham was, was as far before Jesus as we are after him. Imagine the difference in Abraham's time and Jesus' time. Jesus had um, sandals and togas and tunics, and we have iPhones. Like, there's a big difference between now and Jesus' time. There, chronologically, same difference between Jesus and his forefather, Abraham, to whom this great pro uh, promise was given. And, uh, and, and we'll see uh, next week what that actually looks like. But we are going to be dealing with two stories that nestle into this little point right here. So... Our first story is Noah. Now tell me, based on some of the principles that Drew laid out, based on some of these long themes throughout Scripture, what is the story of Noah? Can, can anybody venture to guess what the story is actually about? It is history. So it is a, a, a recounting of facts, to be sure. But why include it in our book? 
There are a number of things that took place in this part of the world, in this part of history, that were probably worth recording. But why, why save Noah for future generations to read about? Yeah. <laughs> and you were here on Sunday, which is fun. Um, okay, let's read a little bit. Well, just so to, I assume everybody knows the general story of Noah, but here it is. Um, in those days, everyone was wicked. I mean, here's, uh, there's a really famous phrase that the Bible uses in Genesis 6. Um, Genesis 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of the heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that He had made man on the earth, and it grieved Him to His heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, just a little bit of a clue about how we read this story. Look at what God is upset about. He is upset about man who I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. And when you hear a list like that, are there any famous passages five chapters beforehand that sound familiar? Like God is frustrated that His original creation, His original design for things has gone off kilter. And so He is going to hit the reset button. He is going to do something about it. Now, we, we know, of course, that God um, asks Moses to build an ark in the desert. Crazy as it may seem, I'm going to flood the earth. I'm going to punish. I'm going to start over with you. I am going to restart this process. Um, so He does it. And the floods come, and everybody dies. Um, and then they're floating, and we have this. The waters recede, and we have the rainbow, the iconic symbol of this particular passage. We know that the rainbow is indicative of God's promise, but what is its significance? What's a big word that is used in association with with uh, the rainbow. It's a covenantal promise. It's a sign of His covenant. Here is uh, what God says in chapter 9, Genesis 9, starting in verse 8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth that is with you. Again, that's Genesis 1 language. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. 
and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. Now, it would be worth pausing for just a second. What is a covenant? This is an extremely biblical word that we use all the time, but let's make sure we understand. What is a covenant? Hmm? It's an agreement that two individuals agree to that's the important part in conditions and terms um, so a covenant is an agreement it is a contract um, that has the what are the conditions and terms like what are the biblical words for them blessings and curses now there are a number of different kinds of covenants God enters into a number of covenants with mankind there are Unconditional covenants and there are conditional covenants. Conditional covenant would be this one. The Mosaic covenant is a conditional covenant. It means that it truly does have blessings and curses conditioned upon whether or not you obey. So God gives the law um, as they come out of Egypt on Mount Sinai. He gives the law and He says, you should do these things. Why? Does anybody know why He gives them the law? God gives, He tells them the purpose for the law. So that you will live long in the land. So that you will live long in what land? The land of Canaan. They're going to the promised land. And he is doing this to preserve for himself a distinct people that does not intermarry, that does not mingle, that does not co-settle with the idolatrous nations in Canaan. They are going to purge Canaan of all idolatry and set up the Yahweh camp. And if you follow my laws, you will live long in the land. This is a conditional covenant. The blessing you will live long in the land. The curse, you will not. Now, did they uphold this covenant? Nope. Because Israel has proven that they have an incredible ability to continually mess things up. Um, they, in 720, well, the, first there's the split a little bit after this time period. So David is king. He has a son named Solomon. And then Solomon's uh, successor is a king by the name of Rehoboam who is... Um, he's fighting over the throne with another man named Jeroboam, and the nation splits in the north and south. Now, in 722 B.C., the north falls. They go into captivity. Why? Because they did not keep their covenant with God, so they lost the land. God sends in the nation of Babylon to conquer, or of Assyria to conquer and take them out. 150 years later, the south falls, 586 B.C., to the Babylonians, they come and take them out. This is where a bunch of your major prophets, Daniel, Ezekiel, they're writing from Babylon as exiles, as men who have lost their homeland because they didn't keep God's covenant. They are now enduring the curse of the Mosaic covenant. So there's this kind of covenant. There's also an un unconditional covenant like this. You see, God does not tell Noah, because I really think you're going to do well at this, I'll never flood the land again. He just says, like, by my own word, because of who I am, because of my great kindness and my great grace, I will never again destroy the earth by flooding it. Now, help me run through world history really fast. Let's talk about all the atrocities and all the catastrophes that have taken place. We got a history guy back here. Let's tell, what's, what are the, Let's go easy. Holocaust. That was bad. Right? What else? Hmm? The killing fields. Hmm? The killing fields. Yes. What else? 
Yes. Yeah. That too. What else? Tsunamis. Hurricanes. Rape. Incest. Murder. Abortion. You name it. This stuff has happened after the flood. Now think about what does that tell us about God's character? He knew the Holocaust would take place. He knew children would be abused. And yet he makes this promise that he'll never again punish the earth by flooding it and killing everybody. What does that tell us about his character? Is he just apathetic? I think he hit the nail on the head. Long-suffering, another way of saying that is he has a, a godlike view of human history. And he knows what he's doing. And it's, it's incredible how God has the ability to suffer the rebellion of his own creation for the sake of what he intends to do with it. The flood actually tells us of several things. First of all, we see his judgment on humanity. God does not tolerate sin. He judges sin, and rightfully so. But he let eight people live. And then he promises, I'll never do that again. We see his grace butt up against his justice. And so I find that this is one of those stories that unbelievers constantly point to, that, the Canaanite conquest, you name it, as pictures of a bloodthirsty, um, maniacal, megalomaniac God. And I just say, no, I think He's a God who's just and has standards, but He's also an unbelievably gracious God who saved eight people and who has never done that again and how patient must he be to see what has taken place as an absolute offense to him and to his name. So this story is not just, I, I love that this is my son's favorite story in the picture in the little kid Bibles because it has elephants in every page. He loves it. But it's so much bigger than that. We look at this and it's not a cute story about animals. It's not a funny story about a guy in a desert building a boat. It is an incredible picture of God's judgment, His justice, and His grace, and His absolute um, incessant desire to achieve His will, which is to recreate the world, to restore what has been broken. This is an incredible story of a God who makes a lavish promise to... to, uh, allow certain things to take place but like Joanne said he's got a long suffering nature our next story is um, I'll move over here it again comes underneath the Adamic covenant is the Tower of Babel now this one has been a frustrating story for me mostly because the logic of it is hard to get your head around. The Tower of Babel is this. Genesis 11? Yeah, Genesis 11. I'll just read this to you and then we'll crack it open. 
Now, the whole earth had one language. These are the, this is, I mean, we now have people that come from Noah and his descendants. The whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. They, then they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they, all, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and therefore confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord, Yahweh, dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because the Lord, there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. And I have to ask, like, every time I've read this, I walk away asking, why did God react like that? Why, why respond by confusing their languages and dispersing them like that? I mean, it says that they, he, this is the Lord. Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do now will be impossible for them. And I'm sitting here thinking, that sounds awesome. Like, they sound, they sound like successful and industrious, and like they're going to prosper, like they're doing well. Why doesn't he want this for his people? But God is offended at what they're doing. So what is his offense? There are two offenses. Help me think through this. Help me think this out. Yes, they are making for themselves a name. I like what you're saying. They're making, they want them to be famous. We know that that's not okay with God, right? That anyone's name would be exalted above his. What's the other offense? They were, they were idolizing their Do what? They, I would put that under this. But yes, they, they, were, they were very proud of what they were doing. Yep, I would include that here. See, this is hard. This is why like, I've never understood this passage. Yes? They didn't obey God's command to spread out among the earth. Right there. They, were, they did not spread out. Now, why is that a big issue? What's well, our text? Genesis 1.28. God said, be fruitful, multiply, spread out, and subdue the earth. And they say, we're going to be fruitful our way. We're going to multiply here, and we're not going anywhere. We're going to build like a super citadel. And we're just going to... And God says, I don't think so. And I have the ability to invent languages on the spot and send you out. Now, in much the same way, let's go back to Noah for just a second. What did God say that he would do after Noah lands? This is Genesis 9, verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Genesis 1, 28. Fill the earth 
The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and on all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. God reinstituted His charge to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Does it here? And then all, all the way in Genesis 11, they've again failed to do what He said. Now God always achieves what He intends to do. Disobedience or not. So He forces their hand. Um, God is, is dealing with, and, and I think Drew used this, this phrase, He's dealing with people who would usurp the authority from Him rather than take the authority that's been given to them and steward it as He pleases. You see, God does give authority to subdue things. And, and we see in, 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 in uh, the region of Shinar, wherever that might be, we see here that they have, they have wrestled that authority away from God's hands and are going to use it for their own intents and their own purposes. And God says no. But isn't it fascinating how God's justice comes back into play again? God is just, and what He says goes, and He will have His way. And in Abraham, next week, you're going to see that His grace comes back into play as well. Now, we'll end with this. We do see a picture of what God intends to do. If you skip over to Acts 2, someone tell me what happens in the second chapter of Acts. I only needed, I only needed Anthony in the room to answer that question. <laughs> but it's right, the, uh, the Spirit comes on these believers. I'm, I'm going to read for you just the first six verses of Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. That sounds interesting. Together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men, from every nation under heaven. Be multiply, fill the earth. Jews now, from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. In Genesis 11, God confuses languages and spread them out. In Acts 2, brings them back together and they understand one another. God is recreating what has been undone. He, even when He is the one that confuses the languages and spreads people out, He is working in spite of rebellion and He is working through rebellion. Just read Revelation. He works through the dragon, through, the, through Babylon, through the prostitute, but it's always God who's working. He is behind the scenes working through evil. He can do this. And then when it comes to Acts 2, he's starting to bring it all back together. The recreation is starting to take place. The Spirit of God is coming on those who have the very image of God, and things are beginning to be restored. This beautiful picture. And you have another picture quite like it in Revelation 7. This is the throne room of God. 
Seven? Seven. You look at where I want to read. Revelation 7, this is God's throne room. And, I, and after this I looked, that would be John the Apostle, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. Be fruitful, multiply, great multitude. From every nation they've spread out, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes that would symbolize their righteousness, with palm branches in their hand that would symbolize the fact that they are reigning with Him, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So you have a great multitude that no one could number from all nations crying out with one voice. Isn't it incredible how you have this symmetry as God is creating, dealing with sin, deals with sin finally, and then you see recreation taking place. We see many, many aspects of God's character here, but I think um, that you said it I think it was you, somebody, I think it was you, said it um, at first that we see a strong picture in these first two stories of God's sovereignty to achieve His will and His purpose in spite of humanity. Now, I hope that over the next several weeks, over the next nine weeks, this becomes a little easier to grasp. It is not our intention to, um, to just give 20 mini lessons that are relatively informative on Scripture. It is our intention that after 20 mini lessons, you feel more comfort reading through the Scriptures yourselves. And, it's, and I'll encourage you with this. It's when you saturate yourself with the Scriptures that you'll begin to see these connections. Um, I have a two-year-old son, and I can understand every single word he says. None of you could. He's, he, I mean, he talks gibberish. You probably could get close. But none of you could understand Matthew like I understand Matthew. And his, his words are kind of hard to, dis, to understand and to discern, but you know why I can understand every single word he says? Because I'm with him all the time. I'm used to the way he talks. So when he grabs my phone and comes running to me and says, Pickers, 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 Pickers. You would all think he's crazy. I know he wants to see the pictures of himself and his sister on my phone. And I only know that because I've spent time with him. I fear that probably a lot of the reason why this book is so confusing is because for so much of our lives we failed to saturate ourselves with it and failed to spend time with it. Um, I'm very familiar. I can pick up most of Mark Twain's books and and read a particular, you flip it to a page, and I can probably summarize the rest of the chapter because I'm very familiar with his books. They're my, he's my favorite non-biblical writer. And I would hope that this becomes one of those things where we become so familiar with that I could start to read to you the story of the Tower of Babel and you could finish it for me and say, and here's what God's doing, and here's what I see in his character. And this is what in this story is worthy of my worship. It's not just a weird story about a tower and some people that can't talk to one another anymore. It's a beautiful story about a God who will achieve what he intends to achieve, despite the circumstances. Any questions, comments, concerns, complaints? Direct complaints to Scott and Drew. Questions, comments, concerns.
Again, you guys, um, you're, you're catching the second of two every week. So if you know you're going to be gone on a Wednesday and you want to catch it live, you can come on Sunday. We're in the college room starting at 930. And then we are also recording this. So we will have it on the Table podcast and the Sunnybrook teaching podcast. So you can catch it in either place. Let me pray for us and we will be done. Father, I am, as always, exceedingly grateful for your scriptures. Grateful for the fact that in them we find you, and in them we find the absolute truth. Father, may we never become so infatuated with your scriptures that they are the end-all, be-all. I never want to love the Bible so much that I fail to love the one who wrote it, but... May we always remember that these are accurate testimonies and accurate witness to who you are. So I pray that your spirit would drive us to your book, would make us hungry for it. Give us a a deep, insatiable desire to pour over your words and to understand and love and worship you better. Teach us these things. We love you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.